This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Uh, by way of introduction, Roger is an investor, a businessman, a musician, a relentless storyteller, and now also a journalist. And I say journalist because his new book, Zucked, tells an important story about how things can go wrong when power and money come together in an, in an environment where there's little accountability or public understanding. When he has a guitar in his hands, Roger goes by the name Chubby Wombat Moon Alice. <laughs> and in that persona, he's the proud uh, uh, creator of It's 420 Somewhere, which is, which is not literally true, but close. Uh, uh, and is one of the most downloaded songs in history by an independent label, and thereby has a place in the Rock and Roll, rock and roll Hall of Fame. Um, Thank you. Like, like many successful people, Roger has done things differently than his peers. His work as an analyst took him into the early world of PCs, where he spent his time networking with people and sizing up their products rather than following the technical uh, 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 approach of his peers. This combination of curiosity, conviviality, and intellect have made Roger fabulously successful, a wealthy man, and a big figure in Silicon Valley, where our story begins. So Roger, with that, tell me about your first meeting with Mark Zuckerberg. It's a, it's a remarkable story, and I think it just sets the scene in an ideal way. So, imagine, we're talking about 2006. I'm 50 years old. I've been a professional investor half of my life. I get an email from the chief privacy officer at Facebook who knew me by reputation, but I don't think we had ever met. And he says, my boss has a really serious business problem. And he needs to talk to basically a dinosaur. He needs to talk to somebody who's been around forever, who can be objective and can keep a secret. Would you meet with him? And I said, sure. I've got plenty of time, a little bit at the end of next week and then the week after. How about 1 o'clock today? I went, uh, okay. Now, here's the thing. In 2006, Facebook was two years old. Hmm. They just finished a $9 million year where the ads were basically banner ads for pizza delivery. It was a foreign news feed, so it was still just a Facebook picture, name, address, and relationship status. That's all they had. It was just high school students and college students. But I was already convinced that Facebook would be more important than Google was at that time. And I thought that was true because Mark and his team had found the holy grail for building a network of people. It turns out that if you build a big network and people can be anonymous, the network gets taken over by trolls. Bad people come in and make people, everybody else's life miserable. But because of the way they did this, where you had to have an email address from your school, either college or high school, he had authenticated identity. People had to be themselves. And that acted as this way of keeping everybody in control. And I'm going, oh my God, that's the secret. That's how he's going to build this great big thing. I was really excited to meet this young man. 
Now, Elevation Partners, my firm at that time, I started it with a bunch of really cool people, one of whom was a rock and roll star, Bono from U2. Another one was the president of Electronic Arts, the world's largest video game company. Another guy was the past chief financial officer of Apple. Cool group of people. But because of the video game thing, one of our conference rooms was a living room. And it had this giant flat screen TV with huge speakers and every video game console known to man, plus this giant emulator that had every console video game, or sorry, every arcade video game ever made, like 5,200 of them. But it was also soundproof to within an inch of its leg because we still had to have an office. And whenever the young kids went in there and played the game, they'd turn it up like crazy. <laughs> so this is a room that, if you didn't say anything, was dead quiet. Mark Zuckerberg comes over, and he looks just like the Zuck you imagine. He's got the T-shirt, the hoodie, the flip-flops. And how old is he at this He's point? He's 22 years old. Oh. Okay? He's been at it for two years. He's already raised a pile of venture money, so there's no opportunity for me to invest. I'm just meeting him because I think he is the coolest thing I've seen. He sits down, and I realize there's no way this guy's going to trust me. I'm 50. He's 22. There's just, like, no way, right? So I say, dude, before you say anything, I got to tell you some context. I said, I think you have the greatest company since Google, and you're going to be more important than they are now. But guess what? If it hasn't already happened, either Microsoft or Yahoo is going to offer a billion dollars for your company. Remember, he just had nine million revenues. I mean, a billion dollars would be insane, right? But they're going to offer a billion. And everybody you know, your parents, your board of directors, your management team, they're all going to tell you, take the money, Mark. You'll have 650 million bucks. You're 22, right? I mean, you can change the world. And we'll back your next company in. You can do it again. I said, Mark, I've been doing this a long time. I know one thing. Actually, I know two things. Whoever buys this company is going to kill it. And there isn't anybody in the history of Silicon Valley who had the perfect idea at the perfect time twice. If you like this idea, if you believe in it, you got to go back to everybody when they say this and just tell them, we're going to see this thing through. It took me exactly that long to say it. You wouldn't believe what happened next. I've just laid this huge thing on him, right? He's supposed to go, man, that's really interesting or something, right? No. Dead silence. Listen to this room if I say nothing. Now imagine that going on for one minute. Well, for the first minute, I'm thinking, well, okay, he's really thinking. This is pretty cool, right? I mean, you know, I've given him some really good advice, and he's taking it seriously. At two minutes, I'm going, this is really <laughs> weird. At three minutes, my fingernails are carving holes in the furniture. At four minutes, I'm ready to scream. I'm going, oh, my God, how long is this going to go on? And finally, he relaxes. And he goes, you won't believe this, but the thing you just described, that's why I'm here. It just happened. One of those two companies offered a billion dollars for Facebook, and everybody told me to take the money. I said, do you want to sell it? He goes, no, but I don't want to disappoint everybody. I said, dude, this is such a good idea. If you follow your vision, if you believe in it, you follow it, they're going to be so happy if you don't do this deal. The whole meeting lasted half an hour. And I left there. He left. He blows the deal up, right? 
I mean, he wanted to blow it up. All I did was show him how to do it. So it wasn't that big a deal, but it was a really important moment in his life. And for three years after that, I got to be an advisor to this young man. And my, unit, my experience with him was fantastic. I really liked him. When the movie The Social Network came out, I didn't watch it because I wanted to believe the Mark Zuckerberg I knew. You know, with the mature, focused, idealistic young man who came into my office. <laughs> the guy who was very socially awkward, but in a way that I kind of understood because I'm a nerd and that's Silicon Valley and people are kind of like that. Right? It's not like San Diego. It's not this laid back surfer <laughs> thing. No, up there it's like, and, you know, it's what it is. Turns out the social network had some grains of truth in it. I wish I'd known that. But I really liked Mark, and my whole experience with him was first rate. But it ended in 2009, and the problems that happened at Facebook, the seeds were planted by then. But the business model that caused all the problems, and that's what this is about. This is about a culture and a business model, and it's not just about Facebook. It's about Instagram. It's about WhatsApp. It's about Google. It's about YouTube. It's about Twitter. It's about Snapchat. That business model and that culture is really dangerous. But it doesn't really get going at Facebook until about, 2000, about 2013. At Google, it was already going. But at Google, they were really good at hiding it. So you didn't see it. And the incredible thing, and this is what tells you how smart they were, Facebook got to 2 billion people before the damage showed up. Hmm. I mean, these are really, really smart, really capable people. And they created products I love, and I got completely addicted to. Yeah, so let's skip ahead now for a minute, because then we're going to come back and fill in uh, yeah. uh, the rest of the story. So uh, let's go ahead, not too many years, 2016. Yeah. And you, an a, a avid Facebook user, both for your band and in your personal life, you, you, you begin to worry something is seriously amiss. What is it that you saw? Yeah. So, as a preamble to this, Mark Twain once had a great thing about, you know, I said, imagine an idiot and imagine a member of Congress. <laughs> but I repeat myself. <laughs> that was me. I'm a professional analyst, and I had a massive failure of analysis. Now, you could say that the fact that I'd retired might have had an influence. And the fact that I wanted to believe that these guys were good people, that for sure had an influence. And there was so much to like, that had an influence. But basically, I stopped being an advisor in 2009, and I was a cheerleader. And I was a cheerleader, and a few points of evidence came along that could have told me I really need to take a different attitude, but I didn't seize them. But in 2016, Ann and I were on vacation, and I'm on Facebook because, you know what, I'm addicted to Facebook. And so I'm on there every day. And all of a sudden, I see this really weird, nasty, nasty anti-Hillary Clinton meme. And I go, oh, that's ugly. And it's from some group like Bay Area for Bernie. I go, hmm. The next day, four of my friends are circulating a different one from the same group. Day after that, like eight of my friends. And then like 16. I'm going, wait a minute. I built a big Facebook group around Moon Alice. Nobody goes from one to four to eight to 16 in like consecutive days without spending real money. Now, why would anybody do that? 
Then a month and a half later, Facebook expels a group. They expel a group that is using the advertising tools to gather information on people who expressed an interest in Black Lives Matter. And then they'd sell the data to police departments so the police departments could follow those people and harass them. Now, Facebook did the right thing. They expelled them. But the damage had already been done. I'm going, wow, that's really evil. I mean, not by Facebook, but by these guys. Mm -hmm. Then Brexit in June. The United Kingdom votes to leave the European Union the night before the referendum. The expectation is it's going to be Remain is going to win by four points. Remain has this really neutral message of, hey, we got the best economic deal in the EU. Why would we want to give that up? The final vote, Leave wins by four. Eight-point swing on the last day in a place where polling is normally really good. The only variable that the polling hadn't taken account of was advertising on Facebook because Leave's campaign was those evil immigrants are destroying our whole way of life and they're, you know, they're going to eat your cat, right? I mean, it was every, they were tripping, making stuff up. It was wild. And I was wondering, huh, they didn't have that big a budget. Is it possible that the virality of inflammatory messages on Facebook affected an election? That would be a bad thing for democracy. And then, in October, the news comes out. Housing and Urban Development, division of our government, cites Facebook because the advertising tools allowed discrimination in the housing market in violation of fair housing law. So I got four data points. Two of them related to democracy, two of them for civil rights. And I go, I got to reach out. I write an op-ed for a tech blog called Recode in which I express my fear that the business model and algorithms of Facebook were allowing bad people to hurt innocent people. And my lovely wife, Anne, encourages me to send it to Mark and Cheryl because I didn't want publicity. What I wanted to do is fix a problem. So I send it to Mark and Cheryl. On the 30th of Cheryl October. Cheryl Sandberg. Cheryl Sandberg, CEO. the number two person who CEO. I had yeah. brought in, I'd introduced Mark to and helped to bring her into the company. So these were two really close friends of mine. And I said, guys, I'm really worried. You got to look at this thing. I sent it the 30th of October, nine days before the election. They get back to me right away. They're really polite. They go, Roger, we really appreciate you reaching out, but it's not a problem with the business model. It's not even a problem with the algorithms. These are all isolated things, and we've taken care of them. Nothing to see here. But we value your opinion. So we're going to assign one of our key team members, Dan Rose, and he's going to work with you, and we're going to figure out if there's a problem. And I go to Dan. I go, dude, what I'm saying to you is you got to look. If I'm right and you don't look, you blow up the company. If I'm wrong, you lose nothing, right? you got to look. He goes, Roger. The law protects us. The Communications Decency Act of 1996 says we're a platform, not a media company. So we're not responsible for what any third party does. And I go, okay. Then the election happens. And they go, I call them up the next day and I go, Dan, it's entirely possible that I said this in a much more colorful way, but. I go, Dan, it's possible the Russians have tipped the election using Facebook. And your brand is at risk. I mean, what if you tipped Brexit, right? I mean, 
what if democracy is being undone by Facebook? People are going to be really unhappy about that. You know, they may like this outcome, but they're not going to like the next one because anybody could do this. If it's in your in your algorithms, in your business model, literally anybody who wants to destroy democracy can come in. China, Iran, anybody. And uh, he's going, no, no, we're totally protected. I spent three months trying to persuade him to do what Johnson & Johnson did after the Tylenol poisoning. I'm going, dude, these people use your product. You owe them a responsibility. You've got to protect them. You've got to do whatever it costs. I mean... You have to. And he's going, no, no, no. I spent three months and I give up. Because he's treating it like a PR problem. And I'm going, it's not. What I don't know is that three weeks after I send off the thing, President Obama meets with him and goes, hey, the FBI thinks there's a real problem here. Right? Because the news that Russians were interfering comes right before the election. And Obama tells this to to Zuckerberg. Then their own guy does do the investigation, comes back with the same answer, and they bury it. So they knew in December of 2016, they knew they were in it right up the year. I don't know that. So I go looking for allies. That's when I decide to become an activist. Yeah, so uh, uh, now the, the last little piece that I want to touch on before we branch out is the Cambridge Analytica uh, scandal. A, because it's well known to people, but B, also because the details there help people to understand. So first I have to tell you about the business model then, because okay. I got to okay. give yeah. it. I gotta, so what I didn't know, and this is the part as an analyst I am going to go to my grave regretting, because I could have known this and I didn't. The way that Facebook and Google make their advertising work is that they take all these tricks of psychology from slot machines, from propaganda, from public relations and advertising. So here's the problem. With TV, the ad interrupts your content. In a newspaper, it might be a whole page and block all the content, or it might be right there next to the content. But it's big. It stands out. Facebook, it looks just like everything else. Google, it looks just like everything else. They got to get you to spend a lot more time to make those ads worthwhile. So what do we do? First, they got to get you to come back. So they play tricks. Every human being has this like evolutionary need for rewards. We can't help it, right? This is how slot machines work, right? What do they do? They give you notifications. Right? Notifications appear to be this highly personalized thing. They're generated by an artificial intelligence, and they are sent to you at moments when their AI calculates you are vulnerable and in need of a reward. Okay? I'm not joking about this. This stuff does not come when the machine knows that the message is there. It comes when the machine believes you're most likely to react. They give you likes. They let you know you've been tagged right? To force you to want to reciprocate, right? It all makes you get involved. Then they got this problem. How do I get you to be really active when you're there? Well, we could show you wedding photos and pictures of puppies, right? The problem is your happiness is going to cause a certain amount of, shall we say, resentment in at least some portion of the population. But your fear, your outrage, you share those things, two things happen. One, you feel better because you've shared your fear and your outrage. 
And the second thing is, everybody else needs to share it because they feel fear and outrage, and they got to share it too. So it turns out that's why conspiracy theories and mm -hmm. disinformation and all that kind of stuff spreads so intensely, right? 70% further than fact, six times faster. That's from MIT. So I don't know any of this. I learned that from a guy named Tristan Harris, who I meet in April of 2017. And he was a, he was a professional in persuasive technology and had been at Google and was campaigning to stop this. And he and I team up. We don't know anything about Cambridge Analytica. So Cambridge Analytica was this thing created by Stephen Bannon. And it was realistically evil, but ingenious. I mean, yeah. really genius. I mean, they had this insight that Facebook knew so much about each one of us, whether we were on it or not on it, right? Because they go and get all the data everywhere online, right? When you touch a like button on the web, when you use Facebook Connect to, to, to go to another site to log into something, they're tracking you wherever you go. They know everything. They know all your buttons. So you're going on there looking for it at a puppy photo, right? That's not what's going on. You're competing against this huge artificial intelligence. And what Cambridge Analytica realized was, you don't need to have a traditional campaign. I don't need to convince you that climate change is a real problem. I don't need to convince you that we should spend more money on the military. I just need to figure out what the thing is that inflames you. So, ma'am, if it turns out that your great fear is you really love shelter dogs, okay? And so your thing is, I would do anything to protect shelter dogs. If I accuse the other candidate of drowning shelter dogs in the bathtub, in a polarized country, I'm unlikely to be able to get you to go from one side to the other. But if I say both candidates drown shelter dogs in the bathtub, you might not vote. And that's what they did. It's what they did in Brexit. It's what they did in our election. And it's what anybody can do in any election. I mean, literally anybody can do this because this is this giant thing and it's undefended. There is this philosophy in Silicon Valley that's been around from, so from 1956 when Silicon Valley started to 2004, you could legitimately trust pretty much anything that came out of Silicon Valley because the world of Silicon Valley was a world of engineering constraints. You could never do a global product like Facebook or Google. You didn't have enough processing power, memory, storage, or bandwidth. And so tech products always made your life better because the harmful ones get knocked off almost right away. Right? They just can't get started. So pretty much we made what Steve Jobs used to call bicycles for the mind. Right? That's why we trusted this stuff because you could buy a tech product and in the end you might not like it, but it wasn't going to hurt anybody which caused an engineering strategy of, hey, the minute you could get the lights to go on with the product, you ship it. You don't worry about testing it. You let the customers test it for you. If there are any bugs, they'll find them. If there are any flaws, they'll find them, and you fix them, right? Well, you do that across 2 billion people, and you're going to change civilization. And that's the problem. All these guys still ship products without testing them. And they expect all of us to clean up the mess. First, you know, Google and Facebook. Now it's Alexa and Google Home. Mm. How many of you guys have an Alexa or Google Home item? How many of you have it in the bedroom? 
the things listen all the time. I did two podcasts in the last week with people, and I get to this part of the program, and I talk about Alexa, and their Alexa goes, I'm sorry, I don't understand <laughs> you. I didn't say, hey, Alexa. I just said the word Alexa. She's listening all the time. Do you know who makes all the hardware for those devices? Huawei and ZTE. Two companies that our government says are really dangerous, right? Did you see the family that their, their Google home security system told them there were inbound nukes coming in? Scared the bejesus out of them. I think you only need to be in fourth grade to hack Android, which is the operating system under all this. I don't think you're allowed to hack it under fourth grade, but I think once you get fourth grade, anybody can do it. Anyway, what I'm trying to get down to is that when you're looking at Cambridge Analytica, when you're looking at all this stuff, right, I, I saw it on Facebook, right? And imagine, I'm Jimmy Stewart, it's rear window, and I'm starting out dumb as a post. I mean, I had no excuse. 34 years in the business, I should have seen it. I did not. So like Jimmy Stewart, I pull on the thread because I've seen Raymond Burr strangle the woman across the, across the alley, and I'm going, that's not right. And, you know, I see this stuff, and the book is my journey. And I don't... I, I get through all the technology babble. I ignore all that stuff, and I just tell you what you need to know because we're going to need to know it because it's not Facebook, right? I mean, Facebook's a huge problem, but Google's a bigger problem, and these smart devices are a huge problem. Artificial intelligence is being made by the same morons who made all this other stuff, which means Microsoft's facial recognition doesn't recognize women. Google's didn't recognize people of color. Now, you think the people making it, that that might say something about the people making it? I think it says something about it. Mm -hmm. You look at mortgage application AIs. It never occurred to them that the real-world training sets that they trained it with have all these biases built in. You cannot put biases into a black box because there's no right of appeal. So if you put redlining in, you're stuck, and that's what happened. You know what happened with resume reviewing AIs? Yeah. Massive gender bias, massive racial bias. And I'm going, that was totally unnecessary. That's what happens when you ship a product without testing it. That's what happens if you're a child and you do not understand that you have a social responsibility to society. And that is what's wrong with my world. And that is what made me become an activist because it's not necessary. There is nothing inevitable about any of this. We didn't used to do this. We don't need to be doing it now. And there's way more of us than there are of them. Yeah, now, Roger, one of the things that I think is so uh, uh, significant about your book is the, uh, the way it allows you, as you move through this book, to appreciate how profound and fundamental the problem is uh, and uh, I want to get to that in a second, but I do want to go back and just help people understand a little bit using Cambridge Analytica about how digital advertising actually works, because I'm not sure everybody's fluent in it. So what happened at Cambridge Analytica was uh, uh, they put up this research uh, uh, project and paid people using uh, uh, so uh, Mechanical Turk to take personality tests, right? And so here was the problem. So Facebook, when it first started up, when I knew Mark when I was involved, they had one mission, one mission only. Mark wanted to create a network that connected all the people in the world 
which we interpreted in those days as people who spoke English, and it really meant maybe 100 million people, which would have been a staggering success. And so the goal was connect people. But then their investors said to them, no, you got to make some money. And the problem is if people only spend 20 seconds on your site or a minute on your site, and the ads are in the news feed, you just, their ads aren't worth anything. You had to get people to spend 20 minutes, 30 minutes a day. How are they going to do that? Yeah, and if you remember, even at the IPO, it was like, I don't know. Are they going to be able to make mobile work? It's Maybe right. it's iffy. Right. So right. the problem was, this, so there was a company called Zynga. They had a product called Farmville. Do you remember Farmville? What, what, what they did was they, they figured out a way, to, essentially, to hack Facebook, to get access to the friends lists of the people who played Farmville. So they made it a social game, and you played it with your friends. And suddenly the people playing Farmville were on Facebook for 60 minutes a day, and everybody else was on for one. Light bulb goes off. Facebook basically goes, you in the game business? Okay, you start a game, we'll give you access to the friends list of everybody who signs up for your game. In 2011, the Federal Trade Commission goes, you can't do that. You have to get explicit permission from the friends. You can't give all their data away just because that's good for your business. And in my data, just to help people understand, what, what's in my Facebook so data? What in, would, why would that be uh, in, in uh, 2011, or Yeah, in dangerous? 2011, when, when it was there, okay, when they were first doing it, Facebook had basically all the photos you put up, right, and all of the posts you put up. But they also had what's known as metadata, which is data about data. And the reason it's significant is it's what tells you what you were doing right before you put the post up and what you did afterwards. What, you did, you know, what site you came from, what site you went to. So when you clicked into a thing, what did you do after that? And it turns out that all that behavioral information has huge value not just about you, but about people who are like you, like your friends. Now, later, Facebook folds in when they start to put um, like buttons around the web when they had Facebook Connect to let you go onto the things, which is all beginning in 2009 and 10, and but really takes off in 2013. Suddenly they have a complete blueprint of what were the 14 things you did before you decided to buy a car. That stuff had incredible value to advertisers because then the advertisers would find people who did the first 11 of those things, and they go, whoa, I need to show a car ad to that guy, okay? And those things are not necessarily auto-shopping. No, in fact, most of them weren't. Right. In fact, the, what's really weird is when you have an AI, things that would normally not make any sense and have no value. So the key thing is before Facebook and Google, every marketer collected data. But what did they do with it? They improved the product or service that they sold to the person from whom they collected the data. What Google did initially, they figured this out in 2003, and then Facebook followed, was they realized that there was a thing called, when you had AI behind it, you could analyze data and find really unexpected connections. And they call that a behavioral surplus. And the behavioral surplus is what the data tells you about other people. So it's what they now know that Jeff and I are on stage together because they've got our geolocation, which they've acquired from our cell phone company. They've probably tracked our credit card spending. They've certainly tracked if we checked our phones here. Mm-hmm. Our okay. searches, the things we All of those things. So they, went, they now know that we're connected. So they're now busily scanning everything I've done on Facebook and everything I've done on the web to figure out what they can do to, to extract value from Jeff. Okay? 
They're doing that to each one of you here right now. That's what the AI yeah, this is this is the essence of digital advertising and targeting. It is indeed. And it's gone from a brand proposition of telling you why this product is good for you to find exactly what Bannon realized about election advertising. Find your weak spot and extract value from it, and you may never get any benefit from that exercise. So they say in advertising, you're not the customer, you're the product. For Google and Facebook, you're not even the product. You're the fuel. I believe that is morally wrong. And I say this to somebody who should have known better, but I didn't. But once I figured it out, I decided I had to stand up and make sure the world understood. Okay? Because it's not just about elections. It's about our kids. Right? We ran an experiment on a whole generation of kids thinking, we've got to get them on computers as early as possible. After 9-11, we said, hey, you don't want them playing outside. They might get, you know, beaten up. You want them on a computer. And what do we find out? Young minds are very plastic. Young brains are very plastic. And it turns out that the dopamine neurotransmitter that gets triggered by intense visual stimulation can arrest really important parts of the development of children's brains. We now know you don't want a computer in the classroom because you need the kids to focus on the teacher for concentration and attention you need them to focus on their classmates for socialization. The computers for home when they're on their own, not for the classroom. So we've learned a lot of things, and now it's time to go in and fix those things. So now, so there's a couple of factors here that I think you show come together in a particularly dangerous way. So A, we've got this environment where data, behavioral data is being gathered, making us uh, 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 vulnerable to manipulation, uh, there's a great part of the book where you talk about the actual uh, discipline, the science of technical persuasion. But then you also talk about the, uh, the, the nature of this connected world where, as you say, belonging becomes more important yeah. than truth. Yeah. So this is a... You, you all know about disinformation and you know, you know about filter bubbles. This is the notion where, you know, there have always been filter bubbles. When I grew up, I was uh, in second grade when President Kennedy was killed and the Beatles came to America. Everybody watched those two things, right? All of you who are above the age of 50 remember, or above the age of 60, I guess, remember President Kennedy's funeral and the Beatles coming, right? And everybody above the age of 55 remembers the moon landing. We all watched those things together. And that continued right through the MASH finale, right? <laughs> right? It was called water cooler television, and, and that was a filter bubble. We all had the same set of facts. The problem with Facebook and Google is they create a filter bubble that's unique to each person. And what they do is they push out anything that they think you don't like. And what winds up happening is you start with, you know, maybe you're curious about something or you lean some way, but they show you nothing but that. And they keep reinforcing because you're on there every day. After a year or so, you go from being curious to being committed, okay? And if the thing they get you curious or committed about is a conspiracy theory or disinformation, what winds up happening is you wind up developing this tribal thing around ideas. And you stop being able to talk to people who, essentially anybody whose ideas are different is like the enemy. 
And it's, you can't help it. This is, it's so basic in human wiring. And civilization was about getting past those kinds of things where effectively these products are undoing civilization. And by the way, I was just as guilty of this as anybody, right? I wasn't talking to people who disagreed with me. In fact, my whole confession, I used to carry seven mobile devices on my belt. <laughs> I looked like Batman. And seriously, you didn't want to get near me because I couldn't help it. I was like always looking at a screen. All my relationships were moderated, by mediated by technology. It was nuts. And so part of my getting well is, is eye contact face-to-face. -face. And so these things are, this, the, the problem that you're dealing with here, right, is this tribalism. You can't cure this with more code. You can't cure it with technology. That's what Mark wants to do. But that's not the cure. The cure is for us to get together and realize, you know what? We're all Americans. We're all human beings. We have way more in common than we have set different, right? I mean, you know, I, I, I believe this is about right and wrong, not right and left. And... I've been really successful. I've spent, you know, my politics are what they are, but I've been in, on every cable network, and I've been working with people because the only way to solve this is for all of us to do it together. Because as I said before, there's way more of us than there are of them. And what they're doing is wrong. It's not American. Here's the problem, right? I don't begrudge them their economic power. They were brilliant. What I begrudge is that because of the nature of the products, They've taken over the public square. They've taken over politics in every country in the world, every country where they operate. They weren't elected. There's no accountability. Think about it this way. Their code, their algorithms control your life way more than the law does. I don't get within, I mean, I drive like a granny. I don't even get close to the speed limit, okay? I mean, the law is irrelevant in my life. Facebook told me I couldn't promote my book on their site. Amazon told me I couldn't advertise it because the title of the book is scandalous. <laughs> I'm going, pardon me. Who made you the law around here? There's no right of appeal. And they own our politics, right? And the point here is they control the sphere so well that they're basically keeping us from knowing. So my job is to go, hey, wait a minute. Maybe you'll believe me, or maybe you won't. But at least we'll get together and we'll talk about it. And then you talk to your friends. Because this is America. We can do better. We really can. I mean, here's what they're doing, right? They've knocked off journalism. They're working on film now. They're going for cars next. They're going to knock off one industry after another until they have the entire economy. They're not even being shy about it, right? I mean, this is one of those things, you know, they didn't come for me because I wasn't an immigrant. Well, guess what? They're coming for you. And I would like to stop them now while we still can. Yeah, in a minute, let's, we should talk a little bit about what we could do and what society yeah. should do. But I want to touch just a little bit more on this, uh, uh, the, the, the emotional contagion it seems to be endemic yeah. to this world. So when I was reading your book, uh, the old semiotic student in me came out, and I, I went back and tried to read the Marshall McLuhan, which is much more difficult than your book. Um, but there's a brilliant insight in there. This is the medium is the message, right? And uh, 
you give this metaphor of inside this completely connected world, suddenly everybody's like a fan at a football game. Yeah. And there's this emotional contagion. I think we've all experienced this where you're swept away and, and, and reason uh, and civility goes out the door. Yeah. So that's like somehow it seemed like connecting the whole world. That's, that's a really uh, a well, noble goal. What could be wrong with that? So I just want to hear a little of uh, your thoughts on the, the basic problem of what we've created here. So, so y'all understand the concept of fire departments, right, for dealing with wildfire. We live in California, right? Now, does the fire department have a plan ahead of time? Yeah, they have containment plans drawn up ahead of time in case a wildfire starts, right? Does the New York Stock Exchange have a plan in case of emotional contagion in the markets? Yes. Do Google and Facebook have a plan for emotional contagion? No. Remember, they're a platform. It's not their problem. At least that's what they believe. So here's what I, I really think we have to think about. Is that Facebook and Google are media companies. There are a million different things they could show you at a moment. They pick the 20 in your news feed that serve their economic interests. So the whole dodge that they're a platform is nonsense. They tell you, oh, you choose what you click on. I'm sorry, they control the menu. So no. They say, oh, well, but you've consented. Complete nonsense. How many of you have read the terms of service on Facebook or Google? It, okay, so, but you know what I mean. It's dozens and dozens of pages. It takes hours to actually read it carefully. And the point here is they don't tell you when it changes. And you give up all rights just by using the product. And none of that happened until you, after you'd already had this huge investment in these platforms. And it wasn't a reasonable choice to just stop using it, right? When you have this huge investment, you're just not going to do that. It's not, it, it, so it's what's called a coerced consent. It's not reasonable consent. And the issue here is that... You remember the movie Truman Show, right? Jim Carrey lives in this whole... You know, he's the star of his own TV show. Facebook has given each one of us our own Truman Show with our own unique set of facts. You cannot have a democracy if you can't agree on the facts. In a democracy, if you agree on the facts, you can disagree on what to do about it. But you've got to agree on the facts. And in this country, 40% of the population is convinced of things that are demonstrably not true. And that is a really hard thing for democracy. And we have to get past that. And the only way to do it is to sit down and go, you know what? Miami's going to be underwater by 2,100, and they're going to run out of clean drinking water in like 20 years. We probably ought to do something about that, right? Now, while well, we got a chance. And I'm looking at all this, and I'm going, none of this stuff is political. And the only reason it's been made political is because it serves the economic interest of the richest companies in the world. And this is America. We have a long history of not allowing that, right? I mean, the founding fathers thought monopoly was associated with monarchy. They were against it. They were in favor of entrepreneurship and competition. I'm a capitalist. I'd like to see that again. So can I, what to do about it? Yes. Here's the thing. 
The world is different than it used to be. Things that were totally normal and okay 20 years ago are not normal and okay today. In the world of AI, if they know where you are and they know where you spend your money, they can figure out exactly what your hot buttons are. So yeah. tell us about like the magician's trick. I think that's a great uh, way of understanding the way we're hardwired to be manipulated in certain ways. We, yeah, right? yeah. So, so, so you know how magic works, right? You know, your eyes follow the thing that moves quickly and all of that, right? We're all wired the same way, right? And so the rewards thing is one part of that. The fear and, and anxiety is another part of that. But if you don't mind, let me tell them how to, yeah, how to, yeah. how to fix it. Because I want you to understand, I'm actually incredibly optimistic. I know we can fix this. Teddy Roosevelt stopped the trusts back in the early part of the 20th century, right? We got through the Depression. We won World War II. Those are all much harder than this, okay? We can fix this thing. We got the votes because guess what? We're 99.9999999% of the population, okay? Right? It's a vanishingly small number of people that benefit. I want us to reassess things we used to take for granted. Question number one, why, this is a privacy question, why is it legal to sell our credit card and financial information to anyone who wants to buy it? I do not think that is a legitimate business activity any longer. I think you could make a case that 20 years ago it was harmless, but today it's demonstrably not harmless. Why is it legal for cellular companies to sell location data? Why is it legal for companies to spy on us? Why is it legal to collect any information at all about children? Right? I mean, I've seen some heads nodding because you sit there and you look at it and go, you know, I don't know what the right answer is there, but I think we ought to have a debate. I mean, credit card processors don't need to sell data to have a good business. Certainly Google and Facebook don't need to give data away to have a good business. And in Europe, Europe has recently made strides. Uh, in well, we, hang on. California, we passed a yeah, really important true. privacy law, right? I mean, we're going to solve this problem right here in California. This is going to be an issue in 2020. And I think every candidate who wins is going to be on our side. I don't think it's no matter what party they're in, right? I don't think this is going to be a Democrat-Republican thing at all. I mean, this is really low-hanging fruit. Right? It's a political no-brainer. You fix this, you got a chance to help on public health, the mental health of you and your children. you got a chance to repair democracy. you got a chance to help people with their privacy, which is really the ability to make choices without fear. And you got a chance to rebuild the entrepreneurial economy and introduce some more innovation. I mean, what's not to like? Right? So let me tell you what I did. I was, I remember seven things on my belt, Batman? Everything in the screen? I mean, Ann will tell you, I couldn't get through a meal without consulting my screens. It was horrible. I'm still addicted, right? Addiction is addiction. You can't fix it. But I've changed my behavior. I can't get off Facebook for two reasons. The band is on it. I get 420,000 <laughs> fans. And literally, we moved them there 10 years ago. I, getting it off would be a disaster. I like Facebook, so I'm just behaving differently. No politics, right? I don't let anybody push my buttons. I don't block anybody. I don't try to win arguments on it. Mm. But really importantly, I got a book to promote. It's for people who are on Facebook and Instagram, right? I got to be on there to promote it. But I could do something about Google. 
because they're substitutes. You remember the game Frogger? You know, you're the frog. You got to get across the river by hopping across the logs that are moving by. Google's the river. I'm the frog. The logs are the other apps. And there's one for everything that Google makes. And I got to tell you, it's really inconvenient, but it's worth it. So I use DuckDuckGo as my search engine. I use Apple Safari as my browser. I use the Microsoft Outlook email. I use Microsoft applications. I use a whole bunch of other things. Every once in a while, I'm on the web. I inadvertently look in at a restaurant, and my mouse clicks by mistake, and the map opens up. It's Google Maps, and pfft, I'm in the river. My high score is two months. No Google for two months. Mm. And everybody hates me because I don't use Google Docs, and so I'm a pain in the butt. But you know what? Nobody should use Google Docs. It's not that good. There are plenty of substitutes. And my point is you don't need to get all off of this stuff, but just get rid of some stuff. If you're on Facebook, don't use Messenger. If you really love Instagram, don't use Facebook. If you really love Facebook, don't use Instagram. Or if you do, recognize that Instagram is right now the most dangerous product out there. It's killing teenagers. I mean, killing them, right? The bullying that's going on there, the body shaming, the fear of missing out, really screwing up kids. It's really scary. But here's the thing. We have power. We can change our behavior. But more importantly, we can get together. We can make it safe in our neighborhoods for kids to play outdoors. We can stop letting them sell us products that make us afraid of our neighbors. Right? I mean... The reason that Ring and all those guys want you to patrol your neighborhood is not because your neighborhood is dangerous. It's because it's really good business to scare you. Remember I told you, it's the same thing Facebook does, right? Don't let them scare you, right? Protect the little kids. No screens to age two, right? Very limited. Don't, don't give a 10-year-old a smartphone. Give them a dumb phone. No, I'm not joking. If they got to have a phone, give them a phone. It's just a phone. I mean... It, the psychology of the stuff really matters, okay? But let's do this together. You don't have to be alone. You know, it's like book clubs, right? It's like PTAs. We can do this. Talk to each other. It's going to be fun. I mean, I make eye contact again. <laughs> eye contact is really grossly underrated. Okay, well said, uh, Roger McNamee. The book is zucked. Uh, 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 it's an easy read and one that will really make you think. Thank you so much for uh, your profound insights. And You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.